Welcome to In Loving Recollection. This is your pal Brent. Those that know me well know that I have a strong dislike for rain. This time of year in particular can be pretty tough on me because it just seems to always be raining here in Georgia. And because I'm also someone with a natural inclination towards gloominess, rain has the potential to make matters even worse. Now, I've never been diagnosed with seasonal affective disorder, but my mother has said that as a child, she and my teachers would often notice a shift in my mood during those months in which it rained most often. I have no clear memory of this, but I do remember a specific time as a teenager, after my band had played a show at a local coffee house, that I officially decided that rain was a real asshole. At this point, We were bringing an actual upright piano to gigs, which we had somehow managed to borrow from our high school. When we first started playing together, we had decided that even though the plastic Yamaha keyboard we had at our disposal sounded perfectly fine and required only one person to carry it, it'd be way cooler to use a real piano at shows. Transporting the piano was always a difficult endeavor, considering that none of us were especially athletic, nor had we been driving for very long. Now, for some reason, which I can't quite remember, we left the piano at the coffee house overnight and returned the next morning to take it back to the school. I was in my stepfather's truck, and my bandmate James was in his truck, the Scottsdale, which also had a small utility trailer attached to it. Backing the Scottsdale up with the trailer proved to be too difficult for us, so we detached it, rolled it up to the coffee house's back entrance, and loaded up the piano that way. But then we were unable to get the trailer back onto the Scottsdale. Luckily, we were able to get it onto my stepfather's truck, but I really didn't feel comfortable driving it with the trailer attached, so we decided that James would drive my stepdad's truck, and I would follow behind in the Scottsdale. Pretty much immediately when we started driving, it began to pour. I just remember it being a really stressful drive, watching this piano that had been entrusted to us getting drenched in rainwater. And then, as we were crossing some train tracks, James slammed on the brakes, causing me to do the same in the Scottsdale. With the roads being very wet and it being a fairly old truck with not the greatest brakes, The Scottsdale did an involuntary 180-degree turn, putting me in the exact opposite direction of where we were going and thoroughly scaring the shit out of me. Needless to say, that was the last time we borrowed that piano. Going forward, we would just use the Yamaha keyboard, having learned the valuable lesson of making the most with what is reasonably available. When the world shut down in the spring of 2020, a time in which it was raining quite a bit in California, Los Angeles-based musician Cyrus Jingris would make the most with what was reasonably available. The end result would be his fourth full-length record, Good God. Now, I first became aware of Jingris through his association with the Kansas-based singer-songwriter Kevin Morby. As a longtime fan of Morby's, it was natural that I would eventually find my way to Jengris' solo material, 
having followed his output for some time. When Gingras announced that he would be releasing the follow-up to his wonderful 2020 record, Love Never Dies, in December of 2022, I knew it would be something that I would want to hear. And when Good God was released, I put it on, and I listened. This is the story of that record. I'm Cyrus Jengris. I wrote all the songs and played almost all the instruments on Good God. in Los Angeles, California. I've been out here for about 10 years. Uh, this is the second release from a label I started last year called Waste Management Music. Um, so yeah, there's uh, the second LP and uh, there's a lot more on the label coming this year or next year, depending on how things go with pressing, but yeah. Cyrus Gingras would spend his childhood in the Hartford, Connecticut suburb of Simsbury, and it is there, at an early age, that he would form a connection with music. It is a pretty, not super exciting, like, upper middle class suburb of Hartford. Um, It's pretty rural. Yeah, there's not a lot of, like, art or music happening but my parents were really there was like a lot of music in the house as a kid and um me and my brother both gravitated towards music like pretty early my brother's four years old i mean by the time we were like 11 12 13 14 we were sort of you know obsessively listening to music and like starting to play it um so, yeah, I think, like, you know, I had sort of a troubled childhood. My mother died when we were young, and uh, my dad you know, struggled with alcoholism. So I think, like, music was definitely, like, a big escape for my brother and I. And, um, it, you know, it just sort of, it's just something we've always done. I mean, I, I definitely didn't ever think about it as, like, a career and and it wasn't until like i was in my late 20s that i ever kind of like started to make any money doing it but it was just something that we always did obsessively dad had a guitar um <laughs> he didn't really know how to play and eventually he gave it to me um but you know a lot of like early childhood like a lot of beatles and like Jimi hendrix sort of like classic rock 60s stuff and then also like the talking heads i remember my parents listened to a lot which i still love um 
it's like we always listen to the radio in the car and they and they had records and they would play them at the house so as far as like the sort of more like underground uh music influences came from my brother who was sort of like an early you know adapter to the internet like him and childhood friend john sort of became uh, you know obsessed with like pavement sonic youth and then sort of from there dug back into like television suicide like velvet underground that kind of stuff so i was sort of like being inundated with all that when i was like you know 13 14 years old and and that like you know i always sort of loved music but then when you know my brother sort of entered high school and started getting into that stuff then it became like focus for me and then i sort of started you know i became interested in playing it as well as just listening to it Jingris's interest in music would eventually lead to him learning to play the guitar, as well as experiment with home recording. I started playing guitar when I was 13. Yeah, I think I only did guitar lessons for like a year, and I wanted to learn like punk music, basically. I, like, I think I told the guitar teacher, like, I want to learn to play punk. And so he taught me like some Ramon songs. Um, and, uh, you know, I think I learned like the 12 bar blues or whatever. I stopped doing lessons pretty quickly. And that was sort of around the time my brother got like a four track, like a Tascam four track. I think he had like a Moog synthesizer as well that he had gotten on like eBay. And, um, we kind of started experimenting with like four track recordings so that was like eighth grade. And then in high school, I got really into like, like my, my brother went off to college and I, I got my own four track and um, started doing like a lot of very sloppy <laughs> experimental like recordings. Like I had like sort of like a hardcore band with my cousin, but we didn't have a drummer. It was sort of just like guitar, bass and vocals, no drums, which sounded very odd and then i think like the biggest stride i took in a certain in a certain point was like i, I kind of started making like hip-hop music on the four track with a couple friends of mine and that was when i got into like layering and like multi-tracking stuff like i had this like basically like a yamaha keyboard that had all the different like you could make it sound like a drum set or strings or whatever it's just like one of these cheap ones and my friends and i would basically just make like we would sort of use like a um rc20 loop station and just kind of like make these beats um and i got really into like multi-tracking that way so that was sort of like my first foray into like recording music jingris would eventually leave connecticut and live in various locations throughout his early 20s. Having previously lived there for a time, Jingris would permanently relocate to Los Angeles, California in 2012. I moved to LA in 2012 basically to play more music, although it wasn't really like a career-oriented decision. I just, my brother was living out there at the time, and I was sort of like, didn't really have much going on. I was like managing it cafe in Great Barrington, Massachusetts and sort of just wanted more like 
you know, more of a city life kind of pace. Um, and I had lived in LA before in like 2006, 2007. So I moved out there and just kind of, I, I was like working in a coffee shop out there and sort of doing like, started going back to school, um, just kind of aimless and, um, started like doing a band out there with my brother, but that didn't really go anywhere. And then I basically was, yeah, like kind of fucking around for a few years. And then I started playing with Jessica Pratt. So that sort of prompted a lot of like touring. And that's, I mean, basically since then I've been, uh, spent a lot of each year other than 2020 being on tour. It is in Los Angeles that Jengris would meet Kevin Morby and eventually join his touring band following a tour with singer-songwriter Jessica Pratt in 2015. I met Kevin through my friend Justin Sullivan, and I met Justin just like I was working at this venue out there. The booker of the venue was a mutual friend of Justin and I's, and we started hanging out. You know, Justin and Kevin were living together. Kevin moved out of that apartment. I took his room, and we all just sort of became friends, and then... I met Jessica through Kevin and Justin. And actually the first tour that Jessica and I did was like a co-headlining tour with Kevin. Um, so that was back when the band was just Kevin and Justin and Meg. So, yeah. And then, you know, we were all just like good friends hanging out. And then Jessica wasn't going to be doing any touring in 2016. And Kevin wanted to add a fourth member to the band. I just was like, oh, I'll do it. And eight years later, I'm still doing it. <laughs> in 2016, Jengris would release his first solo record, Fucking Up My Name, through the San Francisco independent label, Death Records. You were up to something inside your mind. studio in Glendale called Company. I believe Kevin had recorded his second record there. Um, and I did it with this guy Drew Fisher who engineered the first two Kevin records. And yeah, I mean, it was a great experience. It was the first time I had like recorded in a nice studio and um, Justin played drums on the record. I did most of the stuff. My friend Greta Morgan played keys, I think, yeah. And then, has anybody else played on it? I think it, that's it. Um, so yeah, I mean, that was a great experience. I think that record sounds really good. I songs I'm not super crazy about as I, you know, age away from them, but there's, you know, it's cool. I feel like I was sort of, finding my way as a, uh, as a songwriter. Fucking Up My Name would mark the beginning of Jengris' steady output of new material. 
with his second album, Sight Unseen, arriving just two years later. It is in 2020, the same year in which he would release his third full-length, Love Never Dies, that Jengris would begin to work on the material that would make up his fourth record. It's funny, when I was making it, I was sort of like, I really don't want this to be like a pandemic record, but the truth is, is that it really is. Like it, I started a couple of the songs, I think like Deal and um, the song, If I Could, like the guitar parts I had had for a little while. But it was basically like I was on tour with Kevin in Australia and we got back to the States like March 10th, I believe. And then a week later, we were all sort of at home. And I just kind of out of like panic bought a digital 8-track just to have something to do. Like a Tascam digital 8-track. Yeah, like 200 bucks, you know, kind of deal. I had sort of moved away from home recording and hadn't done it in years. And it's kind of like, well, I'm going to be sitting at home. I might as well just like fuck around and have fun. A lot of the songs kind of started as like, you know, experiments or sketches or whatever. And then they just, I kind of just like developed them over time and they became songs. Like, so it all kind of happened like the, uh, I would say like March, April, May of 2020. Um, and I think I sort of was like experimenting and then I kind of thought of them as demos. And then eventually I was like, I'm just going to finish this, you know, like these, they sound good. Um, I mean, it's all other than the drums, it's all direct guitar, you know, through pedals or whatever, but like direct guitar, direct synth, direct bass into a digital a track, no preamps. The vocals are all like on a, you know, SM58. Additional recordings, as well as the mixing of the record, would take place at King Size Sound Labs with engineer Jimmy Dixon. I had worked on a couple projects there, like done a couple sessions there with other bands, and met this guy Jimmy Dixon, who was an engineer there for a while. He's now works at a different place. But I loved him. Me and him just like instantly hit it off. And another band I'm in has recorded with him. And uh, yeah, he's really great. And like, I feel like he really understood the record and like, he just, yeah, he, he did a really like great job of mixing it. Like, so, I mean, a huge credit to Jimmy and my brother who mastered it. I, I was like, not really sure I wanted to put it out until I heard it mixed and mastered. And then I was really happy with it. And in the end, he had made a record. Good God opens with the track Rain, a mood-setting mixture of ethereal synthesizers and the sound of falling rain that efficiently relays the idea that this album is not merely a collection of individual tracks, but rather a cohesive whole 
best experienced from beginning to end. I think with this record, part of like the home recording vibe lent itself to having some of these more like interlude instrumental moments, which I really enjoy. And then, yeah, I think like I got the eight track and I was just kind of messing around. And it, the first little chunk of the pandemic, it just rained in LA for like two weeks straight. And I just was like kind of hanging out in my room and I was like, I'm just going to stick a mic out the window and record this. And I, it sounded cool. And then I was like, you know, just I had also, this is prominently featured on the record, but I, I ordered one of those like Yamaha DX reface. It's like a mini little uh, kind of $200 version of like a DX7. And there's a lot of cool, like, synthy sort of vibey sounds on it. So um, I was just having a lot of fun with that at the time. And that's kind of where that little synth part came from. I believe there's some, like, guitar swells on that song, but it's mostly synths. Like, that kind of wobbly, like, that's all the synth and the pitch bend knob. Inspired by some of the people Gingris met while on his path to sobriety, the track 1970-something consists of an arrangement of skillfully interwoven guitars that acts as a soundtrack for vignettes that center on the character of Big Al. The first verse is about somebody that I know, and then the second verse is about a different person that I know. Uh, the f- I, yeah, I won't go into too much detail, but like... There's a story, okay, so the first Big Al, um, I don't think anyone actually calls him that, but it worked for the song. He has this story that I've heard him tell many times where he was, uh, you know, and this is like in the 70s, where he would had been on some blackout bender, and he came out of a blackout on his knees on think on Hollywood Boulevard and there was and he so he basically came out of this blackout and there was a gun in his face and the person holding the gun was yelling shut the fuck up like he wouldn't stop he had just been in this blackout and he wouldn't stop talking and so (laughs) I think like 
a lot of the songs in the record are sort of about characters that have kind of come in and out of my life. Maybe it was sort of had something to do with like the pandemic or, or just, I think like my personal life was relatively in a sound place or something where I just didn't, I didn't feel particularly inspired to like write about myself. Um, so I kind of tried to write about other people more. Yeah, I think this one was cool because I think I had recorded that. There's like sort of that second acoustic guitar finger picking thing. I think I had maybe recorded it throughout the whole thing and also done like the vocal harmony throughout the whole thing. But then we decided to like sort of layer it and bring it in on the second verse, which I think is really cool. Um, and yeah, like the pedal steel sort of sound, it, that's basically like, uh, it's like guitar swells, but then, you know, like the pedal steel is very complicated instrument and I'm not sure I could explain it, but there's something where you can bend, like you're, if you're playing a run of notes, you can, one of the levers, you can like bend just a single note. Um, and so I'm kind of trying to, um, imitate that by like I'm playing a Jaguar and the bridge is sort of like, you know, I don't know. There's like that part of the, after the bridge is, you know, the sh I don't know how to describe this, but like basically that part where you can, if you strum it, it's just kind of like that sonic UT, like, cling, cling, you know, I'm pressing down on the strings like one of the str so i'm doing like a swell and then i'm pressing down on one of the strings to make one of them bend so you're getting like it's like i'm playing a chord but then and then it's swelling up and then just one of the strings in the chord is bending so that's kind of like my pedal steel impersonation That song, I'm actually playing everything. That's one of the two songs I play drums on as well. I'm really happy with the way that the drums came out on this. Uh, there's a, the other song I play drums on the record I'm less psyched about, but um, we'll get to that. favorite parts of the record i had recorded the song in a different key like i think the original way i recorded it was with no capo and i recorded the whole song and i really liked it and then i tried to sing over it and it just wasn't working and then i put a capo on the second fret and just played it a step up and it was much easier for me to sing 
so I ended up re-recording it on that on the on the same session. And so I re-recorded, I did the vocals and everything, and then when I was sort of listening back to it, I had played the outro longer on the previous version. So like I you know, I was just listening to the tracks back and then they all kind of end and then just all the other the the other song just kind of starts playing. And it's just like that, just a whole step down. And I was like, oh, that's really cool. So I just sort of kept it. Um, This is like a happy accident. Featuring former Beachwood Sparks drummer, Jimmy Hay, the track Deal imagines a world in which Silk Degrees by Boss Skaggs was produced by R. Stevie Moore. Big ideas, small mind, moving up. From your clients to crime In way You barely escape Push it off Before it's already taped You in Out again Behind sense Penitentiary friend Told to light You could not see Then that just That does it for me yeah it's like that part i had for a while before i just like the kind of da, 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 um i don't i just really loved playing it and i would sort of just like play it like over and over again and I remember, like, like, you know, like in a sound check or something, just kind of like, just like playing it. Um, and so I think that was the first thing. I think like when I got the A track, I was like, I'm just gonna record this guitar part and mess with it. And yeah, and then like the lead stuff, I was definitely like listening to a lot of like Dire Straits. I feel like, and so I was like getting into like kind of trying to play like Nofler, like you know it's not like clean finger leads it just lent itself to like this sort of like sparse but kind of groovy arrangement like the bass playing is really like it feels like a lead instrument kind of um and then that was one where my friend jimmy hay who's like a great drummer he's, he's played on a million things and um he's a really like unique person in general but definitely like a unique musical mind and yeah he he came in and played and and he sort of just like so we kind of had the whole song and we played it for him and he just like got in to the drum room and just like immediately just kind of started playing that groove and i was like that's exactly <laughs> what i want it to be um it's cool because like we weren't playing it together but i feel like yeah it's, it it sounds like we're playing it together yeah, he just kind of nailed it. There's not like a lot of fills. Like it doesn't really need that. It's just kind of like just a nice groove. So this is similarly uh, about like a guy that I was closer to this guy than the people in the previous song. But um, basically about this guy I knew. I had met him at a rehab we were like roommates and he was 
uh, he basically was just like had sort of um, at a certain point in his life he got arrested and went to jail and then he was continually going back to jail uh, so it's just sort of about him and his um, troubled journey uh, he, he we were really close I you know I'd spoken with him a few times in the last five or ten years uh, I should really call him but um maybe I, this maybe I will after this, <laughs> this is over it's kind of hard to get a hold of you know it's hard to keep up with what's going on but um really special guy just troubled and you know we were very close at like a sort of pivotal time in my life and uh but the the actual the the lead, like the hook or whatever I guess there's not really much of a it's kind of, it's sort of like there isn't a chorus but the kind of the whole song is the chorus or something the like I never made a deal for something that I couldn't steal I don't that came to me like I don't know I think I was just listening to the guitar part and I just sort of was like singing to myself trying to figure out lyrics and it just kind of came to me and I really liked it and I wrote it down and then I based it uh, sort of around that <laughs> Weirdo lo-fi jazz of If I Could creates a late-night vibe of its combination of electric piano and melodic bass. But the true star of this particular track is Jengris's excellent use of wah-wah guitar, pulling it just enough away from the context that this very specific sound can often connotate. Yeah, yeah, it's hard to pull off sometimes, but I went for it on this one. <laughs> It's funny, I this is sort of an offshoot, but like at some point this year on tour, I was talking to Liam. He played bass in the Kevin band this year, and we were watching some band at a festival, and I sort of leaned over to him, and I was like, should I bring my wah for the next tour? And he just looked at me and went, no. <laughs> but uh, yeah, this is one where I had the guitar part for a while, it's weird It's because it's really short. It's like two minutes, and then there's that sort of outro thing. It's basically like verse, chorus, verse, chorus, done. I sort of had a hard time writing lyrics to it and figuring out, like, the key to sing it in and all that stuff because it just, it was like, I had played the guitar part so many times that uh, it was just sort of hard to conceive of other parts being written for it or something. But I really like it. It's I think it's really cool. Um, and then the 
this guy Max Bauhoff, who was friends with the engineer, like we just had one more day to do the drums, and Jimmy couldn't do it. Jimmy plays on like four or five songs, and then Max plays on two, and so he just kind of came in last minute and played over it. And I love the part. Like it, it's definitely not what I was imagining, but it, I think it makes it so much better. It kind of has like that halftime like deep groove. Um, and I feel like it really kind of nails it. So super happy with it. It's really hard for me to sing it and play it at the same time. So I've been doing a couple shows and we were going to do it. And I was like, I don't want to do it. It's too stressful. <laughs> it's just hard to play it and sing at the same time. track Somebody's Calling is the record's unabashed pop moment, with lyrics that tell the story of Gingras's brief experience playing music with the mighty David Berman, the late songwriter and leader of Silver Jews, who passed away in 2019. When I had, when I sort of started piecing together the record, I was like, oh, I'll write, I'll write some more songs, and I kind of just like came up with this guitar thing, and then the lyrics were written, you know, written about David and, and really written about like the week that I met him and rehearsed with him and the Purple Mountains band. And um, yeah, it's just kind of about that week. It was very surreal. I mean, it, it was, you know, this, um, I think like the tragedy is, well, uh, I mean, obviously the tragedy is, you know, took his own life and is no longer with us, but the band was great. You know what I mean? Like we, I mean, no one heard it. No one will ever hear it, but we were playing the songs, you know, new and old and they just, it felt great. It sounded great. It was so fun. And I mean, it's really surreal to like be playing, you know, like random rules or, you know, some of these like iconic songs with him <laughs> you know I will say like it was obviously an amazing experience and one that I'll treasure but the the one sort of positive thing is that all the people from that band I'm still really close with and they're all like great musicians and, and great friends of mine and we all have sort of you know continued to collaborate um, so yeah so it's you know we try to stay close and yeah honor that experience as much as possible but i had written the lyrics kind of right after that happened which was august 
of 2019 and then kind of set I was maybe going to use it for this other song and then it just fit this one it was sort of one of those things where I was like actually that might work and then I kind of took out the lyrics and was sort of just like singing them to the recorded guitar part and they kind of fit perfectly and so yeah I mean it, it just fell together really naturally I think like yeah like the bass part I don't even think I I think I kind of just like improved it sort of, I just sort of like knew what to play. And then um, the drums is it's Jimmy Hagan. And yeah, it's sort of same thing. Like he just went in and kind of nailed it first go. Um, and I remember, yeah, he, I think he was kind of like, he was like, this one should be the single. He really liked it, which I was, you know, flattered by. Somebody's calling, 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 somebody's calling. Somebody's calling, somebody's calling on you. Yeah, there's like a little cool thing at the end that we did in the studio where like, it's because there's that sort of weird like falling apart, like delayed guitar at the end. That I did in the studio, like Jimmy Dixon, the engineer was like, I think we should kind of add one more thing. And so he, I just played guitar through this like weird fucked up delay pedal, and he just sort of live dubbed it. Yeah, I'm really proud of that song. I really like it. It just kind of like fell together super easily. Following somebody's calling is the hazy instrumental Porta. So the opening is like a, there's the guitar thing in the opening. And that's just like an iPhone recording. And I am actually in a hotel room in Porto, hence this song title, with Jimmy Hay. We were both playing in this band, Amen Dunes, for like a short little tour cycle. And we're playing this festival in Porto, and so we're in this hotel, and I was extremely jet lag like I had basically been I had done a Kevin tour like a five week Kevin tour of the States and then I had immediately flown to do this three week Amon Dunes tour so I was on, on tour for basically eight weeks and I was home for like three days and then we all flew to Portugal I was kind of out of my mind a little bit and I I was really jet lagged 
I was like trying to go over some of the songs or something in the hotel room. And I had tuned my guitar, but for some reason, just because I was kind of out of it, I had tuned the B string to A. And I was like, I was playing it and I was like, I couldn't figure out what sounded wrong. But I was kind of playing this like finger picky thing and I was like, this sounds really good, but it's not like right, you know? And so I was recording my, I was like, what am I doing differently? I recorded myself playing this thing. And then I had ordered like room service or something. So there's a knock on the door and I stop playing and I go answer the door and then person comes in. And so just sort of this weird voice memo that I was like, kind of always liked. And then I also liked the weird sort of finger picky. It's like a C major seven hammering on something, but it's just the A string is, or the B string is tuned to A. And then, so I just sort of, you know, recorded that voice memo and then just sort of added stuff onto it. And yeah, so it's just, it, again, like I think other times when I had recorded records in a studio, it's like you're so strapped for time that you're like, let me just like nail these songs. But with this one, as I was doing it all at home, it was just, I was like, oh, I'll just make a weird kind of instrumental track. And, you know, so I felt like there was a lot more sort of playful experimentation possible. I would rest for a second. Beauty just came to me like a memory. Simplicity When she came Inside again It felt Insane to me Like a simple dream I know What it means There could never be With its abrasive guitar textures, double-tracked vocals, and buzzing synth lines, the track tonight is an exercise in mood dynamics, shifting seamlessly between a sense of menace and a sense of warmth. Sonic Youth, the, uh, so it's also just direct in, so it's like, I think it's like a fuzz factory or something, just kind of like super harsh digital 
feedback kind of thing, which I really, yeah, I think, I feel like that song is really sort of like soft and pretty and I kind of wanted to just fuck it up a little bit. The title actually has nothing to do with the song because on those digital A tracks, you sort of, you like spin the letter wheel thing and like, you know what I mean? And for some reason, I don't know if it was another song with that title or something. That was the title that I had like made for that. And then I just sort of stayed, and then I just ended up calling it that. Sort of a, a working title that stuck. Um, but yeah, that actually, that guitar part I had had for a while, too. Um, and yeah, I, I do, I really like it. It's just sort of, it was just really like, kind of a pretty, but yeah, there's a little dark thing happening with it. Um and then the ending just sort of came together. It's sort of weird because it's it's really just like a verse and then an ending. It's kind of like an intro, verse, end. Um, it's really short, which I like short songs. It's a song about a person that I was in a relationship with at that time. And it's a very, I think maybe the only song in my catalog that's like just a, uh, like a, I guess you could say a love song. Um, it's yeah, it's like a it's a positive song about a person. <laughs> Follow your whims to a broken plane. Should meet you on the other side. You flew in the face of any sensible man. You can run, but you never hide. The pain still. Touching on the lyrical theme of carelessness, the track Theft is a cleverly arranged number in which an arpeggiated guitar pattern, along with subtle touches of percussion and wah-wah guitar, is able to maintain a foundation of support for Jengris' vocals and expressive bass playing. It's definitely like it's very prominent, like yeah, because I feel like the everything's sort of washy, and the drums are kind of like not super prominent or something. They're they're sort of mixed low on purpose, but I feel like the bass is like really very much the kind of lead thing. So there's Jimmy is playing drums on that song, and then also that sh- kind of shaker sound is him rubbing two pieces of paper together <laughs> which is really cool um but then there's also like kind of a drum machine there's like a very reverbed out sounding like kick drum what's making that noise is like i had this that yamaha there's like a some it's only a few times on the record but i had like one of those kind of shitty yamaha sense that has all the you know the, 500 different sounds, drums, piano, whatever. Um, like the one that I had when I was a teenager, you know? Um, and I'm running it through this reverb pedal, and, and that's me just turning it off. So, like, when I would turn it off, it would kind of make this, like, like weird, like, exploding sound that kind of sounds like a kick drum. So I was sort of, like, doing it in time with the song, and it, it's cool. 
The album's title track, with its fever dreamlike arrangement, begins with a reverberating voice speaking in frustration, while atmospheric instrumental textures fill in the sonic space around it, before it all eventually morphs into an anthemic electropop workout. I have this really close friend named Anna Kira. We had sort of lost touch, but then she moved to LA shortly before the pandemic and we became friends again. And I'm gonna get this kind of wrong, but like her friend would send her these voice mails from like her friend's father's college roommate or something like that. And they would get these voicemails and he would send them to her because they were kind of funny. The thing that I sort of love about this is basically him talking about COVID. And he's like frustrated. But to me, what I love about it is it's very like apolitical. He's just sort of talking about being like overwhelmed. And, and it's kind of funny. It's just like Boston accent. Um, but to me, yeah, it like to me, there was something about it that struck the like. Just this sort of like confusing feeling that I was feeling during the whole thing where you're just like, life, you know, gets weird sometimes, but like this feels like this sort of like collective like confusion. And I found myself also becoming very like frustrated at the sort of like moralizing and the politicizing on like both sides. Like, I don't want to hate anyone. I don't want to call anybody an idiot. You know what I mean? I like that you, you can sort of listen to this guy's frustration and feel like you don't know what side he's on or whatever. You know what I mean? It's just sort of this, like, simple human uh, expression. instrumental thing and then my friend had like sent me this voice memo and we would kind of listen to it and laugh and and I, as I was finishing the record I was like I wonder if I could stick this in and I kind of just put it in and it just fit perfect like I just put it right at the top and the, it ends right as the sort of drum machine thing comes in near the end of the record, we get the poignant earworm, Leatherman. Leatherman, leather pad with the pen in the sand, daydreaming, no believing, sun was a man. 
Similar to somebody's calling, I, I was like playing guitar and I kind of came up with the part. And it's very like guitar driven. I really love the chorus guitar part. It's sort of like a weird, like, I don't know how to describe it. It's essentially, I'm just playing, I'm fretting on the E and the G string, and then everything else is kind of open. So it's like sort of these major, minor, like suspended chords i just sort of like built it a little bit like on, on these sort of guitar parts so yeah i recorded all the music and then they're sort of yeah like those cool weird kind of dx sounds and then yeah the lyrics are basically just about my dad who you know he passed away in 2016 you know the title is um the tool the leatherman so leatherman is basically like us it's like a little tool you have in like a leather case like on your belt and it's like a pliers and a knife and a it's like a little handy thing so yeah he he had always carried one and then he also like smoked cigarettes and kind of lay out in the sun all day so he has kind of a very leathery <laughs> presence <laughs> um so yeah it's just about him and kind of uh you know, I think like most songs, probably like you kind of start writing it about something and then you sort of like at the end you're like, I guess this is actually kind of about me. So it's sort of about, uh, you know, sort of viewing my life through the lens of his story a little bit. It's uh, something like emotional song. I definitely feel it when I play it. So it's, it's definitely one of the heavier themes on the record, for sure. Oh, my baby, don't apologize for the same sad story in your mind. Oh, my baby, don't apologize. It's the only kind of love you'll ever find. Oh, my baby. Yeah, I, I recorded that way initially, like in, in the initial recording like all the guitars stay in and then it's funny jimmy actually doesn't play drums on that song max does but he had started to sort of mess around with a part and then we ran out of time and he sort of after that big kind of instrumental break he had started just i think he was just kind of like messing with ideas and he had started doing that kind of snare thing I think maybe i had already kind of had this idea but then it sort of solidified it where i was like oh what if we 
took all the guitars out and it was just it's sort of like a Springsteen-y kind of like like it was the, the first time I played that song live we were like practicing it my friend Jackson was playing guitar in the band and we got to that part and everything cut out and, the, and he just like started laughing because it's so kind of like it's kind of like cheesy but in a good way you know And a sleepless night to dad put up a fight. Bow failing into a bad and take hold. The sun is fading behind the wheel to grow old. My man said that he got something for me. What you wish for? Plot of album's penultimate track is the somber Give Me a Pass, which demonstrates Jengris' effective use of reverb and gloom. I came up with a good, yeah, I mean, it's like, so uh, that's basically how I write songs is I play guitar and then I'm like, oh, okay, this sounds good. And then it's all kind of based on that. But it was one of the later ones. And it, I think it just, it's, it's sort of a downer. I was like, I get this definitely has to like go towards the end of the record. Um, but I really like the kind of like wah lead thing I think is really important. This is one I've I've come around a little bit, but I play drums on it, and I'm like not super happy because <laughs> I'm not a drummer. <laughs> I mean, it's 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 funny. Like I had that part of my head, and that is definitely what I would have directed someone to do. And I feel like it sounds pretty good, but there's something about it to me where, like, again, what you know, it, I'm happy with it, but. It doesn't sit in the mix. The I feel like like Jimmy and Max like they're it's so kind of like groovy. And then even myself, you know, I play drums a little bit, but like the first song that I play drums on on the record, I feel like it's it sits really well. This one just maybe that's what makes it cool. I don't know, but it's, there's something a little like when they come in, I'm like, oh, okay, <laughs> like I don't know, but. Yeah, it's, they're there forever, so that's it.
The album concludes similar to the way in which it began, with the aptly titled instrumental end. There's basically this one setting called Warm Pad on that keyboard that I use. I think it's in probably every song. And so it's that Jimmy Dixon, who makes the record, ended up putting some kind of like effect on it. I don't know if it's like a preamp thing or like a tape saturation or something. The final product is a lot more kind of like... uh, saturated or kind of dirty sounding which I think really helps it a lot um, I love the way it sounds uh, I was like when I got the mixes I was like oh this is great um, funny I, I I had something in mind like I had a reference for that there was some song or album or something that I was sort of like in my head referencing but I can't remember but I don't know. It, I mean, it's kind of like a, you know, I was like, I want it to be sort of this austere, sort of like stark ending. And yeah, I don't know. I just, I kind of wrote it. I'm not much of a key player. Like, I don't really write songs on keys. And it's very much like multiple <laughs> takes when I'm like playing keys on my own records. Um But yeah, I kind of just banged that one out, and I was really happy with it. For the album art, Jingris would edit two separate images together to create the cover's design. So the back cover is a photo that Kevin took of me in Australia right before I recorded the record. Um, And then the first... So actually, the, the cover, which I really love, is... Their video. So it's a, there's a video of me playing drums in our rehearsal space in LA right before we went on that Australian tour. And then there's uh, this other video that Jesse took of me playing live, like at just one of my shows, me playing the guitar. I was doing some, I was just like messing around with some for like an Instagram video or something. And I had edited these two videos together, kind of doing like the Ken Burns, like fade, you know, and so the cover of the record is basically those two videos fading into each other. So you're seeing both. It's like one video superimposed on the other one. And I just kind of paused it at the right moment. And I was like, oh, that's really cool. So it's quite literally a screenshot of an iMovie on my iPhone that is, and, you know, it's like... When I was getting, the graphic designer was like, well, it's, it might be a little grainy or whatever. And I was like, I don't care. <laughs> like, it's fine. Good God is released on December 2nd, 2022, through Jengris's newly formed label, Waste Management Music. I had the idea for the label. Well, with this record, I was kind of like, I think I'm going to self-release it, but if I do, 
I want to like press final. And so at the same time, a friend of mine, this guy Tristan had sent me his record that he had made also over the pandemic. And I, w- I really loved it. And it sort of, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to start a record label because I want to put both of these records out. And I don't think anyone else is going to do it. So I'm just going to do it. My friend Hans came up with the name of the label, Waste Management. And um, I just loved that. I was like, oh, that sounds so great. And it was the kind of thing where the name was so good that I was like, I have to do this. And then my friend Daniel like came up with a really cool logo and it just sort of all felt, I was like, okay, this is, this feels like I got to follow this. Yeah. So Tristan's record is the first record I put out and it came out in November. And then this record came out December 2nd. Um, it's been cool. We did two shows on the West coast, one in LA and one in Berkeley, me and Tristan playing. Uh, and then we did, one in Philly and one in upstate New York and one at Union Pool in Brooklyn. And yeah, I have the next two records already planned. I mean, one of them is almost finished being mixed and then the other one is about to start being mixed. Hopefully if everything goes well, like I'll do two vinyl releases next year. And then I'm, I'm going to try to do tape stuff too. It's so cheap and easy to do a tape. It's like a lot of time, money, and like energy to do a fucking vinyl release. So I can really only probably do one or two of those a year from the time being. But other stuff I would like to do. Like I'm going to do a compilation tape of a bunch of different bands, people I know, which would be cool. So yeah, it's been really fun. I really enjoy doing it. I would love at a certain point to have it be like kind of like a self-sustaining thing i have a whole another record completely finished that just needs to be mixed um that i'm really really excited about feels like the logical progression from good god it's like somewhat similar but kind of a little more big sounding and i'm, I'm super happy with it so yeah so that's kind of it's just Basically, I think the biggest takeaway is like, you just got, I got to just keep doing this stuff. In Act 4 of William Shakespeare's Macbeth, the character Malcolm, a man separated from his native country due to its current chaotic state, exclaims after seeing one of his fellow countrymen for the first time in a while, Good God, but times remove the means that make us strangers a simple plea for an end to the circumstances that had kept them apart. When COVID shut the world down in the shit year of 2020, Cyrus Jengris, attempting to make sense of the circumstances, made a record with the tools that were reasonably available, crafting songs inspired by the individuals that he's known throughout his life, exclaiming, Good God, but times remove the means that make us strangers. I would say I'm um, pleasantly surprised at how well it came out. It's kind of better than I thought it was <laughs> while I was making it, <laughs> which I think is a good thing. So, and that that is due in large part to like 
the people who were involved, like the Max and Jimmy who played drums and Jimmy who mixed it and my brother Ged who mastered it. Um, so, yeah. Thanks for listening to In Loving Recollection. A very special thanks to Cyrus Jengris for speaking with me about this very special record. You can stream Good God and more from Jengris at cyrusjengris.bandcamp.com, the various streaming platforms, or at wastemgmtmusic.com. Seek this stuff out. It'll make you a better person. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or at inlovingrecollection.com. We'll see you next time. We'll get through this.